Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored to have John Marshall. Who is John Marshall? John Marshall is an associate professor at the Middle School of Journalism, Media Integrated Marketing and Communications at Northwestern University. He is the author of Watergate's Legacy and the Press, The Investigative Impulse. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic.com. Everybody here watches that, listens, I mean, reads that. WashingtonPost.com, Christian Center Monitor, Princess Science Monitor, CBS News, Public Eye, Chicago Tribune, Huffington Post, and many other venues. It is my honor to have you, Dr. Marshall. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Egberto. How are you today? I am doing great. But I tell you what, normally when I start these, these interviews, I don't start with a book that you write, but it so happened that this book that you write wrote, I think just the title alone, is something that 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 it's something that we have to take into account right now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book and and the, and the tenets that you brought out in the book? Sure. I started on the book back in 2017, mm -hmm. soon after Donald Trump was elected president, and we all saw and heard a president who vehemently and consistently attacked journalists, mm -hmm. uh, used violent imagery to describe journalists, applauded when a when a congressional candidate body slammed a journalist uh, and called journalists enemies of the American people. I wanted to understand how we got to that point in mm -hmm. terms of the relationship between presidents and the press and what, whether what Donald Trump was doing was completely unprecedented or were there some precedents uh, for what he was doing and, and what were the forces that, that led to this point? Now, let me ask you this because you said whether it was unprecedented or not, or whether it was sort of delivered through some sort of externality, other forces that came out there. What, what was your thought on that? Was it unprecedented or not? Well, there are parts of it, what I found from my research, some of it was precedented, some of it wasn't unprecedented. So what was precedented? Uh, first, the kind of intense partisanship in the media. We've had that before, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the early years of this country, in the 1790s, early 1800s. Uh, I, I write about John Adams's presidency, and uh, things were just as nasty then as they are now. Really, they were. Yes, uh, the, the the level of insults, the level mm -hmm. level of criticism. One thing that was fascinating is the uh, kind of rhetoric around immigration mm -hmm. was very similar. Uh, that immigrants were bringing in uh, crime, were bringing in disease, were going to be disloyal. They talked about immigrants in the same way in the 1790s, except they were talking about the French, Irish, the Germans, yeah. and the Irish. Right. Different nationalities, same, same rhetoric. Uh, what was also precedented is you know, Donald Trump was famous for using Twitter as a way to reach his base, mm -hmm. uh, to try to motivate his voters. Uh, but he was far from the only president to use a new technology to try to go beyond the White House press corps and speak to the public directly. Franklin Roosevelt famously did that with radio inspired right. by chats. He got around the publishers. Many publishers hated Franklin Roosevelt, but he got around them uh, through new technology. John F. Kennedy and other presidents used television, and then starting with Obama, and then and then definitely Donald Trump using social media to do that. So that part was precedented too. Also precedented was uh, Richard Nixon was the first to really come up with the strategy of casting journalists as an enemy as an enemy that, that the public should distrust. Wait, let me, let me, let me back up and ask you. You said yeah. Nixon was the first one who actually made the press the enemy, not these others. 
Right. Uh, I mean, other every president has complained about the press, mm -hmm. uh, has has been upset about things in the press, occasionally lashed out at the press. I think they've all mm -hmm. done that. But for Nixon, it was a definite strategy. There's in, in his in his archives, you can see memos that his chief of staff wrote to him saying, we can make the press a useful enemy. And Nixon wrote, uh, we need to discredit the media. We need to discredit it. Uh, so it was a it was a focused strategy that he had. Uh, in the end, it didn't work for Nixon. He was uh, forced forced to resign because of Watergate. Uh, but Trump picked up that strategy and then kind of put it on steroids in terms of casting the press as an enemy. So those are things I think were precedented. Things, some things that were unprecedented about Trump. Uh, every president at least paid some lip service to the idea that a free press is important in the United right. States. The First Amendment is something important important. Even if they really dislike journalists, they would still say, we need the First Amendment, we need a free press. Trump, nah, no, uh, just the opposite. And Trump was really the first uh, to use violent language about journalists, and the first to make spreading conspiracy theories at the heart of his presidency as part of his media strategy. Uh, so I think there, there were parts of the, of the Trump presidency that was unprecedented, and then there, there were parts that we've seen seen in the past in history. Okay, I, I want to expand the discussion a bit because my, my concern here is uh, it is horrendous that Donald Trump made the press the enemy, that Donald Trump attacked the press, that Donald Trump actually put many of the press in danger. However, my question to you with regards to the press has to do now with the accuracy of the press and isn't it true that to some extent they've laid the groundwork for, if you will, part of the demise of the stature that they would normally have. As an example, um, Donald Trump, in my humble opinion, would not have become president in the beginning if some of the most ridiculous things he spoke about were treated as such by a press who actually gave it legs. In other words, um, when we spoke about, let me give one good example, and then I'd like, for this example, I'd like to like a response. Remember that we had Obama was considered, uh, he was illegitimate because he was born somewhere else. Now, we all know that McCain was born in the country of my birth, Panama, okay? Now, Obama was born of an American mother. Even if you thought he was born in Kenya, it would not have mattered. Obama could be president because just like McCain was a natural born citizen because he was of a, of, of, a, a mother of, American, of an American mother, so would have Obama had been, even if born in Kenya. Yet not any, there's no American that would, would know that if he's born in Kenya, he was still a legitimate president. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right about that part. So two, uh, kind of two-part response to what you say. Uh, yes, journalists, the press, the media makes a lot of mistakes. Everything the media does is, is by definition public. We, we mm -hmm. see it all, we hear it all, right. we read it all. Uh, so uh, unlike most other professions, you, you make a mistake, you're not necessarily gonna get caught in it. Mm -hmm. Journalists get caught and, and deservedly so. Uh, so I'm not gonna just say that the, the press is always perfect about it. And I think the example you give is a great example of when they did a, a very bad job. Uh, and I write about this in the book uh, quite a bit that, that Trump spread this, this lie it was a lie. It was a false conspiracy that 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 Obama wasn't really a true American, uh, even though his birth certificate proved 
he was born in Hawaii. There were newspaper announcements, you know, birth announcement when he was born in, in the Honolulu newspaper. Uh, but yet Trump was able to spread this conspiracy, uh, not just on Fox News, where he went regularly to, to, to push it, but uh, on some of the you know, so-called mainstream uh, TV stations. He would, he would go on like Good Morning America and spread it. Uh, and it, he, he's clever about it in that he would say, well, we need to ask the question, uh, or some people are saying, which is a kind of a classical conspiracy mm -hmm. theory thing. Well, some people are saying this, so I'm gonna talk about it, even though it's demonstra demonstrably untrue. And the, particularly the, the TV shows he went on did not call him on it, and they continued to have him on their shows uh, because he was good ratings. So they were, right. they were going for the dollars, they were going for the profits. Trump was famous, they would have him on. He would say these ridiculous conspiracy theories and sometimes they push back on it, but usually not. And they let him get away with it. And, and he rode that to the White House. Now, Dr. Marshall, with uh, staying on that same subject with the, the Obama thing, is it the response, as an example, I, I mean, is it a responsibility of the press to go the next step? In other words, uh, you point out the fact that you stated that, yes, we could find his birth certificate. Yes, we could find uh, all that information. But the fact that he was born of an American mother made, made it, made not, whether he was born in Kenya or not, moot. It made it a moot point. But the press didn't go that extra step to say, even if, should they do that? And I can bring some other examples as we, we, we look at inflation today and uh, how prices have gone up. Did they say that, but we're starting from a negative position? In other words, during the pandemic, we started from a negative position and thus the absolute growth looks like inflation is more than it is. Things like that concerns me that it has political effects on our system, but it's not accurate reporting that, that does it. So my, your answer. So I do think some of the press did point out the, the fact that you did about, about, his, about his mother, uh, mm -hmm. but I think it, it got buried in the stories mm -hmm. and didn't, didn't get enough attention. So I'm, I'm gonna mostly agree with you about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what your, your point about inflation is, uh, I think one bias, a lot of the media has, a lot of the press has, is is toward the negative, uh, right. towards conflict. Uh, we're, we're, we, the press tends to look for conflict because that's more dramatic. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's more drama to talk about the problems with inflation, which are very real, less drama to talk about, oh, wages have gone up, uh, unemployment has gone way down, uh, the deficit is going down. Uh, so there's, there's a focus on the bad news uh, rather than the good parts of what's going on. Uh, so I don't. I think the press does a bad job of of sometimes getting the complexity of what's going on, mm -hmm. uh, and I think they also focus on the whole. You know, not all reporters, but but a lot of them focus a lot on sort of the horse race aspect of politics. Right. Which candidates up? Which candidates down? Right. How is, yeah. how is this policy going to affect the midterm elections, or how is mm -hmm. this policy going to affect Joe Biden winning or not winning in twenty twenty four? Rather than what does this policy mean? for different Americans or different people around the world. What are the advantages of this policy, disadvantages? What are some of the complexities of it? Uh, there's some of that reporting, but I think it gets tends to get drowned out by the drama of, of that horse, political horse race reporting. Now, based on your research, um, what in, because empirically I can say certain things, but uh, you know, I imagine you've done some studies. What, how influential is the press and how much has the press changed what would have otherwise occurred? 
No, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, there are studies about uh, how the press has the ability to kind of set the agenda mm -hmm. in terms of what issues people talk about. And it also has the power to, to frame the issue to kind of what we were just talking about, what, what to include in the story, what to leave out of the story. Uh, there were some studies done that after um, birth of Fox News, that the people who listened to Fox News were several percentage points more likely uh, to vote Republican than before they had listened to, to, to Fox News as, as one example mm -hmm. of how uh, uh, press or the media can, can sway people uh, politically. So uh, it's going to depend a little bit from outlet to outlet in terms of how much difference it makes, and it probably varies from person to person, but, but on the whole, uh, how the press, uh, what, what stories the press covers, and then again, how, how they frame it does, does indeed make a difference, as you suggest. No, um, you know, I remember being in Washington, D.C. during a in the old days during a Tea Party protest and uh, we came with um, Build a Dream and we had several thousand people that came to build the dream. Right. And we, we had about you know maybe a couple of dozens, a few dozen Tea Partiers. And when we saw the news that day, uh, we had a slight mention of Barber. And it was as if Washington was controlled by the Tea Party in those days. Um, how much responsibility should the press take for issues like that? Uh, that's, a, that's another really good example. Um, I write about in the book how uh, the Tea Party was really um, an offshoot of Fox News, mm -hmm. an offshoot of a lot of talk radio show hosts. Uh, the Tea Party was really kind of nothing at the start. Uh, it was one one guy on a rant. Uh, the Fox I remember promoted, that on Fox, promoted yeah. it, uh, and Fox News uh, personalities uh, would lead Tea Party rallies. Uh, and the same with some of the talk conservative talk radio hosts as well. Uh, so the, the that was a case where at least some elements of of the press were pushing uh, this ideological uh, uh, position. And uh, I, I think the rest of the a lot of the rest of the press is sort of guilty of sort of responding to that and saying, oh, we've got to cover that equally uh, to what Obama is doing. So we're going to give the Tea Party equal coverage. Uh, and I'm one who uh, you're just saying that Reverend Barber, as mm -hmm. I understand it, yes, you know, it was the same day. Um, mm -hmm. I, I admit that I was unfamiliar with that. So mm -hmm. that that's that's a good case where his the coverage of, of what he was doing did not get get equal time. Well, it's interesting because he he has a, a group called the Poor Men's Campaign, and it's a it's a great multicultural group. It looks like America, and they are out there doing a lot of things throughout the country. And they are ones that are really supporting a large, as as you know, what the what the the stats tells us about uh, America right now. They are actually supporting what a majority of the population wants. And I'll be darned, I don't see them in the news. So my next question is, how much you know? I understand that it's wrong for a lot of folks to deal with the media the way they deal. That's why we have independent media. But I mean, uh, it, it is kind of interesting that um, we don't see the coverage of things that matter to, let's say, 70% of the population. And if you look at the, you go to a White House news conference, and I listen to them every day, and you go to a White House news conference, it doesn't cover 90% of the things that that really is uh reference that references the everyday person yeah yeah i, I think the on the whole the press does not do a good job of covering poverty and issues for working class people 
you know, one of the things that, that happened during the first year of the Biden administration is that the child poverty went down, significantly yes. Yes. went down. Yes. We didn't hear a lot about that. Uh, we heard a lot more about uh, corporate tax cuts and so forth. Uh, and I, one of the suggestions I have in, in the last chapter of my book of, of Clash, where I'm, I make some recommendations for the future, is that I think the White House press corps needs, needs to circulate more, mm -hmm. uh, not just stay inside Washington, uh, but spend time. Doctor, let me stop you there, because yeah. that is how I really want to end with, with solutions, because I, I think that is exactly what, uh, what, what we need. So before you get into solutions, sorry for interrupting there, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you about um, if there, do you see any backstories for the reasons why things that matter, let's say like environment, which is a, is a, is a very, in, what, what's the word that I want to use? Whatever, it, it's very important right now for our survival, doesn't have the coverage relative to its importance to society at large. So why, why is that the case? Again, I have a contention that we have too much, that the media is a part of this capitalist system, if you will, and as such, it also depends on the corporate, the same corporations that it may have to speak out against. Is that is there any validity to that? I, I, I think there's some validity to that. Mm -hmm. uh, a large portion of the media is controlled by large corporations. Uh, and I think there may be instances when uh, reporters are pressured not to not to cover something. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I've worked in a lot of newsrooms. Uh, and I know that every reporter I worked with was most interested in, in getting a good story mm -hmm. uh, and finding out what was going on, not, not that we were perfect about it. Um, mm -hmm. And I never had a case where an editor or a publisher told me not to do a story. Uh, I think part of it is um, that uh, I mean, climate change is reported on. Uh, it's, it's out there, uh, but I think it's also it's, it's complicated. And it's easier to tell the, the, those kind of short horse race stories uh, than it is uh, to try to explain uh, what's going on with climate change. And I think it gets also gets into what we talked a little bit about earlier. Uh, climate change most affects uh, people living in uh, poorer countries mm -hmm. right now. And I think we have, we have very weak global coverage. Uh, and in the United States, the people who are most affected uh, by and large are people who live in uh, less advantaged communities. Uh, those are the people who get hammered the most when there's a hurricane or when there's mm -hmm. flooding uh, or when there's fires and droughts. Uh, it tends to be those neighborhoods. Uh, so I think it's back to a little bit to uh, too many journalists uh, coming from from the middle or, or, or wealthier uh, classes and, and not paying attention uh, yeah. uh, to people who uh, are living in poverty or, or people who are, are barely making it in, in, in the economy. Is there any possibility of some self-censorship as well, knowing who pays the bills? I think there's some, there's some possibility of that. I think there's some examples of that. But again, my experience is that what journalists are most interested in is beating their competition and getting a story. We're, we're very competitive. Yeah. Uh, I, I once you know, punched a hole in a wall when, when like the competitor when somebody gets it before you, right? A story that I should have had. Uh, <laughs> we want to beat the competition. So part of it, there's, there's kind of a group think, I think, like if, uh -huh. if your competitors are covering one thing, then you're going to try to outdo them on that one thing. And they, it, you see that I think in Washington all the time, they, they get yeah. focused on one story 
uh, don't think about the broader picture. All right, let's let's end it this way. I, I have, and it ends with two questions. Uh, first of all, please give me some solutions. Number one, and I'm going to tag this one along because I don't want to kind of put it on the side. Tell me what you would have liked me to ask you that I didn't. And if you see any one of my interviews, that's always always my last questions, my brother. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's the great. That's always that's usually my last question when I'm out reporting too. So. All right, great. I love it. I love it. Uh, so I do suggest several solutions uh, in my book. Uh, one I think gets at some of the things that you've been bringing up is uh, more support for nonprofit mm -hmm. journalism. Uh, there are some excellent examples of of nonprofit journalism around the country. Uh, but it's not as big of a sector as the for-profit journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, ProPublica is probably the best investigative oh, yes, reporting site good. out there now. They're a nonprofit. Uh, there's a number of sort of traditional established newspapers that have they've switched to nonprofit status in, in my own city, Chicago. The Chicago Sun-Times is now uh, allied with the local public radio station and has gotten nonprofit status. But as I understand it, the tax laws are, are really difficult to navigate to do that. It's really complicated uh, and, they, and they don't make it easy to, to become a nonprofit. Uh, so I think that's something that could be done to make that easier. I think um, a huge part of the revenue that comes from digital advertising goes mm -hmm. to two places, Facebook and Google. Uh, last stat I saw was, was three-fifths of the digital advertising dollars are going to those two companies. Wow. Uh, Australia passed a law that when Facebook or Google, Google or any other social media company uses news content that somebody else created, uh, and that's what they do, you know, the people will yeah. post the news from elsewhere, and then people see it on Facebook, Facebook sells ads from that. Uh, so Australia has a law that if Facebook or any other company uses news that someone else created, Guess what? They have to pay for it. <laughs> there there has to be a fee that goes to the people who did the reporting to get that information. And I think if there's additional revenue for reporting, we're going to get deeper and more diverse mm -hmm. I... as a result. Uh, so those are two of the, the suggestions I would have. I've got I've got Many a ton more. more folks to so get the rest of his suggestions go get the book which is going yes. to be along with the blog and you can just do it as you listen to the show as well continue my friend uh and then i think a question i wish you'd ask me is what what can we all as 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 citizens um as voters as members of the public as consumers of media do um i think we all have a responsibility to become savvier about what we're consuming understand how social media algorithms work uh, to try to push and promote the most incendiary content, most controversial content, rather than necessarily the most factual content. Uh, there's a stat in my book that in the April of 2020, the first big month of COVID, that sites from the 10 leading health websites got 70 million views, sites from the 10 leading conspiracy sites about COVID got 300 million, four oh, times wow. as many. So we need to become smarter about how that works. Uh, and I think that media kind of media literacy needs to be taught in the schools. I think media literacy is a basic skill now, like, like algebra or, or poetry. Uh, media 
saturates our lives. Uh, we're, we're bombarded with it, and we need to understand uh, how to sort through what's propaganda and what's real information, what's what's verified information, what's not verified, how advertisers are trying to work us, uh, manipulate us, uh, how those algorithms work, uh, and just uh, really understand what, what it is that we're consuming uh, so we can be able to sort through the disinformation and get to the facts. Dr. John Marshall, Associate Professor at the Medill School of Journalism and the author of Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Then Right. Thank you, Berto. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being with us today. We have the honor of having Keisha Blair. Miss Blair is a trained economist and extensive ex has ex experience in the public, private, and not-for-profit sector. She was part of the Prime Minister's delegations to World Economic Forum in 2018, as well as the East Asia Summit in Singapore. She led events such as the Most Powerful Women Summit in Montreal, Canada, and the Fortune Global Forum. She is a graduate of the Executive Leadership Program at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government and has an MSc in Public Policy from Carleton University in Ottawa. She is the author of Holistic Wealth, 36 Life Lessons to Help You Recover from Disruption, Find Your Life Purpose, and Achieve Financial Freedom, and is the founder of Institute on Holistic Wealth. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Ms. Blair. How are you doing today? I'm good, and thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have it no other way. Anyway, I'm after, after getting your information that you, you have, you touch on all the topics that we discuss here at, at, um, at Politics Done Right. So we're happy to have you. Thank you so kindly for being with, here with us. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And how are you? I am fine. Well, anyhow, let, let's get started. Um, what's going on in the economy as you see it today throughout the world? <clears throat> yeah, like I, I, there's so much going on, so much economic disruption, you know, and I think we're all feeling it in our pockets. Uh, we see the rising food prices, rising oil prices, there's high inflation, uh, interest rates are growing, uh, going up as governments try to stem the high inflation by using um, that tool of monetary policy. And so people will see their mortgages going up. They'll see the cost of living going up. And it will seem tight because salaries have been stagnant. Uh, but that's what's going on. And, and we know with the Russia-Ukraine war, that has caused several you know, disruptions to transportation, supply chain disruption. Uh, you know, several products such as wheat, um, you know, with, with the Ukraine being the world's breadbasket have been affected. So I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, there have been predictions that it will get worse. We might be going into a recession towards the end of the year. Let me stop you there because I hear those predictions all around. What are yeah. your thoughts and not the predictions? Because as an economist, what's your own belief as far as uh, when you look at these stats that, that are really out there? Because I have some myself. Yeah, okay, I, I definitely. So I, I, I do think that we will end up in some sort of a recession you know, based on when you look at history. And I did mention in my book too, that, you know, we've seen these crises before 
I did mention the 2000 to 2009 period as the last decade. And I had mentioned in the book too, that I'm hoping that this one won't become another last decade, but it's looking, it's looking likelier and likelier given what's happening globally and geopolitically. Now, I, I do think we are headed there, uh, but we have to watch to see what's going to happen. Uh, but as, as an economist, uh, the signs are there and it, it's a hard balance, right? With, with increasing interest rates, it's a hard balance with what's going on with war, with COVID-19. There's so many factors at play. You know, Miss um, Blair, I am not an economist. I'm an engineer, but who studied economics in college as well. And, you know, one of the things that, the dif that differs between, let's say, engineering and let's say the stockbrokers, et cetera, is we don't buy into um, what I like to call non-math. And, uh, you know, I have you on as one of our, you know, of a leading economist. We're also having Richard Wolf on and a couple other economists on. And what I've been trying to do is probe economists as to uh, what I call the insanity factor of our economic system, where we go through these things. I mean, you just mentioned in your in, in your monologue there that um, you hope this is not a lost decade, but based on how things are going, it just could be again. And unfortunately, based on how things work, I agree with you, sadly. And But the insanity of doing things over and over again the same way puzzles me. So my question, my question to you is, isn't it time for us to revamp the current modal, the current economic system that we have to one that actually makes sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm all for economics getting a refresh. I'm all for the economy getting a refresh. It's something I talk about in holistic wealth and why I even came up with holistic wealth. If we look at it, at the economy from a macro perspective, you know, there's so much income inequality. We have a racial wealth gap. We have certain groups that are shut out of this capitalist system. It, it, it's, it's one of those pet peeves of mine too. And I, I see you smiling because we're, it's an economy that's ex exploitative. We pull, 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 and we're not giving enough back. We're not giving enough back. And the system hasn't worked for a lot of folks. It hasn't worked for a lot of our minority communities for our, our, our women, children, the most vulnerable among us. And so I definitely think we need a redistribution. <laughs> I'm all for, you know, when we talk about the racial wealth gap, we talk about reparations. I'm all for, you know, policies like that because I believe that there's some wrongs that weren't right, that weren't made right before. And we're going down a path that's not sustainable. COVID-19 showed us that it's not sustainable, right? And we look at the interplay between wealth, health, or mental health, and all of that. It's, it's showing us, and even the environment, it's showing us that we're, we were not on a path to sustainability. We were doing the opposite. So definitely, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we definitely need to not think about going back to that old normal. We need to think about creating this new normal and what we want our post-pandemic lives to look like. Now, what, where I think it's so important for what you write, what you promote, what you talk about to our audience and others, uh, especially since you have the pedigree, the credentials to say it, I don't, you do, um, uh, is to um, 
that people understand that an economy isn't something that is divine or our economic system isn't divine. It is actually man-made. And notice I didn't say person-made. I said man-made for certain people who are invited into the game. And um, it, it, we need more people like you out there, uh, not just activists like myself, letting people know how uh, this is an economy that's actually behaving exactly as it should, don't you think? Or exactly as it was designed. Exactly as it was designed. And, you know, it's unbelievable the level of income inequality that we have right now. And I mentioned in the book that it's the number one economic problem. It's the number one problem that we have in the world. When you look at the growth in incomes of billionaires during the first half of COVID-19, when you look at certain companies and how they profited, from this. It's just unbelievable. And so we've set up an economy where a few benefit and the vast majority don't. We saw where the debts took place. We saw the people who were most vulnerable out there, the essential workers, transportation um, drivers, mechanics, people going out there and facing it and dying while others were more protected. Now, I, I do believe that we can, if there's that will, we can shape our economy to be more inclusive and to be more equitable. And I think that's the route we need to go when we look at our post-pandemic lives. We can absolutely reshape. We can absolutely start to right some of those wrongs. And we can start to look at, at having a, a post-COVID economy that's more equitable. Ms. Blair, in the context of your book then, because a lot of this is covered, uh, what can we do to empower folks? What are the, the 36 life, life lessons or at least some of the 36 life lessons that uh, folks should actually take into making a better, uh, a better, a betterment for us all? Yeah, so it's, it's, it, it can be looked at uh, at the personal level as well as the state level. And when we talk about, let's say, macro, the state level, you know, in the back of the book, I have this holistic wealth index. Uh, that is kind of like uh, a framework that organizations can use, that state level governments can use. I don't want to, to interrupt, but I have to. I, I don't want to interrupt, but I have to. What exactly is holistic wealth? Yeah, so holistic wealth is the interconnection between these critical pillars. So it's the financial uh, wealth. It's the uh, mental and emotional health. It is your physical health and your life purpose and spirituality and relationships as well in that. So all of that, I think, is, is that interplay between all of those factors and why we need to look at our economy more holistically. We need to look at our personal finances and our lives more holistically. We've seen the great resignation wave. That's also part of that organic trend mm -hmm. towards, I want to live a life that's more authentic. I don't want to be just a number or stat. I want to live that life that gives me that balance, that joy, that meaning. And that's what we've seen some trends here that have that been so basically, true. that have been basically predicated on this whole holistic wealth concept now for some time. It's just that, it wasn't there before in terms in terms of a book and it wasn't there in terms of our, our vocabulary or way of communicating it but all the trends that we're seeing now with a passion economy worth over 80 billion 
with the great resignation wave, with people looking at how they can live a more meaningful life. I mean, COVID-19 has spurred that. So when we think about holistic wealth, when we think about organizations, when we think about governments around the world, this is a tool, this is a framework that we can all use to shape this post-pandemic era. And it's so funny, in the book I talk about a little about economics too and how we focus too much on our um, so you have the, these moral um, resources and the economic resources, and we focus too much on our economic resources, not enough on our moral resources. And our moral resources are our relationships, they're our people, our labor force, the partnerships, the way we collaborate to help each other, the way we reach out to help each other. Those are the moral resources that we'll need to pull in we need to have an economy that's more focused on our moral resources when we shape our post-pandemic world rather than those economic resources that we always think about. And so what we think about is in extractive terms, in exploitative terms. When we think about it in more moral terms, then I think we'll come closer to what we want that life to look like, what we want our economies to look like. Ms. Blair, I mean, I don't, I could not have said that any better. You're speaking directly to everything that I preach. Thank you. Uh, I mean, you do not know what it means to me to have an economist in the Western world say that I'm going to have Richard Wolf on. I don't know if you ever heard of Richard Wolf right here in in, um, in the United States. Um, he teaches at, at uh, uh, not Yale, um, uh, Princeton, I think it is. And he's going to be on with us. And he speaks the same language. And I've been trying to get more economists that can come out to the folks and let them understand that it's not solely about that economic piece that you speak about. Because right. think about this, uh, Ms. Blair, think about this. We have in corporations right now, the executives that, you know, you know what, you know, you know, the, the, what the workers have been going through over the last several years. Yes. And, uh, and we also know that corporate profits are sky high, even in, yeah. and they are sky high. And we have all these guys sitting pretty up there saying, well, I got me a great bonus. I mean, look how great we were able to increase profits, increase productivity not realizing that that wasn't you doing it right it was those guys down there doing it but you are taking the spoils our economy is designed to be extractive and the ones that don't work do it and yeah. it's folks like yourself and the book that you promote that in that bring that promotes bringing people up that makes the difference so i mean um you don't know how happy i am to have yet another economist validating these particular um these these particular issues so tell me um how can we first of all i mean it, it is hard for those who are in in panama we'd say viviendo la vida loca living that life how do we get those that are living that life understand that what they're doing really is um promoting what i call antiseptic slavery of the masses how do we allow them to see that yeah, I, I think it's just what we're doing here now. And it's unbelievable because I think what they're doing isn't sustainable long-term. Thank you. Workers for, thank you. It isn't sustainable. It's an unsustainable model. You have to look at, you, you only have to look at what's happening with Amazon, with Tesla. Workers are going to wake up. 
they're going to realize that this has not served them. It's not serving their families. This is becoming life and death. And some of the decisions that workers are making right now, whenever they step out to go to work, have been life and death during COVID-19. And COVID-19 has really shed light on that. The fact that it really is unsustainable. So they're building company models that are unsustainable. And they're building models that no longer work and will no longer work. That's why we have things like the passion economy where workers are getting up on you know, Etsy, they're going on Shopify to create their own businesses, they're going on, on different mm -hmm. platforms uh, to create their own business and really tap into their passions, into their skills and what they can provide. And so I think we're going to see a blossoming of more of that, the great resignation wave, you know, when it started, in 2020, people were saying, oh, maybe this will, you know, this will fizzle. As economists, we have not seen it fizzle. It's gotten, it's gotten worse. It's gotten more structured, more solidified. And I think it's something that they're going to have to wake up and realize. And companies are, they are waking up and they are realizing. So let's hope that it's for the good of all, it's for the benefit of all workers, that they do wake up and realize it's not sustainable. And of course, you know, there are people out there, other economists like myself, who are also talking about this, trying to raise more awareness. You're also talking about it and, and people are talking amongst themselves. I think we will see some change, hopefully for the better for all of us, uh, you know, so that we have a more uh, economic model, a sustainable economic model. You know, uh, Gar Alperovitz, he's an economist, a professor out here at, um, I think, uh, I don't remember the American, I don't remember where it's at, he's a historian as well, what, who, who, which university he works with, but uh, he started to talk about the collective, where, where you know, I mean, instead of uh, Exxon being run by all these executives, etc., that it's the, you know, they have a collective body and they, they grow together, they fail together. And if they if they fail, they fail. If they grow, they grow. But everybody partakes of, partake of the spoils. It is, yeah. as you said, it is something that I think, given the unsustainability of the, the, the economic system that we have, that we're going to have to get to. Now, fighting that 10% that controls everything, those that we call the managerial level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they're powerful. They're the ones that control the media. They're the ones that control everything. So they... Uh, uh, let me give an example. Uh, programs like mine actually get throttled. So what we throttle, I don't know if you know the term throttle on the internet, which, okay, so we get throttled. So what we do is we have to go around it using old technologies and all of that to get our, to get our information to others. And it just slows down the process of educating the, the masses. But again, uh, what you do, what you write, what you promote and what others do, I think it is so essential for us to eventually break that uh, break that glass. So um, before we go, tell us a little bit about uh, about in more specific to your book now, as opposed to just specific to what we're talking about. Talk a little bit about your book and why you think folks could get should get it, what they can get out of your book. Yeah, absolutely. So it, the book is Holistic Wealth: Thirty Six Life Lessons to Help You Recover from Disruption find your life purpose and achieve financial freedom. And as the book title suggests, there are 36 chapters there that cover off a whole bunch of different lessons that help you to really, you know, uh, find meaning, purpose in life. And, and of course, in terms of that financial pillar to, to achieve financial freedom. And I think 
you know, with what we started off talking about with the economy and the high inflation and people really feeling it in their pockets, it's a really good time for us to focus on, you know, the financial piece, on the mental health piece, and, and all of that's covered in the book. And there are strategies in there that people can use in terms of getting out of debt, you know, how you budget, your money management, investing for the long term. And of course, there are pieces in there in terms of, a, you know, like finding a personal mission and how you write out your personal mission statement and, and living with purpose and meaning. And so this book has been, you know, very dear to me. It stems from my personal story of having been widowed at only 31 and having to go through that grief and, and, and really, you know, go through that disruption and master it. And so there's a whole thesis in the book about mastering the art of recovery from disruption. And I know we're all collectively in that space right now, even if you haven't lost a loved one, or even if you haven't, you know, gone through any major disruption aside from COVID, that we are still in this collectively, we are still in this period of disruption where we we're looking for answers, you know, and we're, we're looking for a way out, we're looking for a way to craft that life that we really want. So this book is a tool in that toolkit. It's, it's um, very good for really getting practical tips and strategies for crafting that, living a life of holistic wealth. And so it's available everywhere online right now and you know in bookstores and people can just grab a copy. It's, it's also a great gift to give. Um, and it's so in line with what we've been talking about and mm -hmm. how people can really take hold of their lives get their power back because I know with this economy, a lot of people feel powerless. A lot of people feel like they've lost control of their lives because of the type of income inequality and, and, and the, the wealth gap that we've seen. But here are some strategies here that can make you feel more empowered to take the decisions you need to, to own your life and to take back some of that control. Um, so I'm happy to share it and I'm glad that, you know, uh, we can have this conversation because there are things we can do, you know, it might feel like, you know, everything's out of control, but we do still have a lot of control in terms of our own personal lives. Let me tell you, I never feel out of control. I always feel in control and going out there and getting a damn thing done. So, uh, and that's what I try to promote on my uh, on my program and that's why i have people who think the same way like you you went out there and did something about it to empower others so i think that is just wonderful that's out there and i'll i definitely want to promote not only personalities but books and all of that that's empowering people as opposed to being as you mentioned before that extractive taking something and leaving nothing back the last question i always ask my distinguished guest is what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Wow, that's a tough one. It's usually um, so. <laughs> it is tough. I can't think of anything. And <laughs> I can't think of anything right now. I think the points that I brought forward are points that were perfect for the show and, and, and for people listening in. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's been great. I can't think of anything. Well, you know what? Uh, that that means I I kind of did my job. So look, I I I appreciate that. Look, uh, Miss Keisha Blair, a trained economist and ex uh, with extensive experience, I'm the author of Holistic Wealth: 36 Life Lessons to Help You Recover from 
uh, disruption, find your life purpose, and achieve financial freedom. It's been my honor to have you on Politics Done Right. Thank you so kindly for having been here. Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me. One, tell the truth even if it, people are offended by it. And two, I think we have to call people to a basic sense of a shared values and get people back to that. This is a, not a problem that started in politics, but is completely intertwined and invested now in politics. This is a po problem that has started, whether it's somebody in a business, large corporations, all Wall Street, whatever it happens to be, where they have adopted an ends justify the means approach, which means whatever profit we can make whatever we can do to achieve whatever it is that we want we can basically do any means and hope we don't get caught and if we caught get caught we'll lawyer up we'll do whatever it takes and so this is a problem this sense of values needs to be infused in our politics but it needs to be infused in our businesses and it for sure needs to be infused back into our churches in america which many churches have lost sight of those fundamental values let's get ted onto the air ted you're hot hey uh I really want to. Now, ordinarily, I'm pretty left, but you uh, have really made a mistake. There is not mm -hmm. one pie that stays the same size. Mm -hmm. The pie can grow. Yes. And innovation increases. I agree that billionaires should pay more taxes mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, but you are really falling into a fallacy. I am so glad that you said that, Ted. When you say that mm -hmm. billionaires, the innovative billionaires, mm -hmm. not the ones that inherit, yeah, uh, they come up with new ideas that you know create more jobs and more competition if managed correctly. Oh, now wow. I grant you that mm -hmm. Republicans, by you know destroying the trusts. Uh, busting and various other things that they're doing are actually destroying competition. But I, uh, Ted, I am so happy you called in. Are you willing to stealing money? Yes, they they're are creating wealth. No, they're stealing money. But, but I'd they like should to pay more taxes. I mean, they should pay more taxes. Ted, can you and entertain you can a conversation? That they pay higher wages. Ted, I, I'm glad you called. First of all, thank you for calling because I, I I needed this I needed this pushback really really bad to make my case because um you I, I think I honestly say this respectfully you have fallen into the indoctrinative trap that I fell into when I considered myself a full fledged capitalist. Let me first tell you a little something, okay? I have uh, had a software company, developed my own software, marketed it, had uh, complete pricing power and was able to sell my software at very high prices to Boeing and several other petroleum industries, space industry, etc. Okay? So I'm not I'm not talking from a position of ignorance here. The second point that I really want to make to you here is that in well, most of my most of my knowledge is academic. But okay, so. sure. Let me let me continue, if, if you will, as I listened to you earlier. Uh, second, the second point that I want to make is innovation. Right? None of these billionaires innovated anything. Let me start. I know you're going to say, "Oh my God, blasphemy!" Let me explain. Uh, back in the '90s, right? I uh, wanted to create a shopping cart pro application. I'm a software developer, engineer, et cetera. I wanted to develop an application. And I started to do a patent search just to be sure is what I it suggested that I do. And I realized that Jeff Bezos, okay, 
patented something called one click. And by the way, you can look all of the everything that I say on air, please corroborate it yourself with your own research. Jeff Bezos patented one click. What Jeff Bezos did with one click is froze me out and many hundreds, if not thousands, of other software developers out of what he now has become Amazon. We were creating a platform. Many of us had that idea. He didn't innovate to create Amazon, what made him his wealth. What he did was freeze many people out of the market. That's why if, if you read my book, as I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom, I go through the entire process of how the patent system has been used to really, you know, uh, which is a part of our economic system to freeze people out. All right. Now, that said, if you look at innovation. Uh, OK, I agree with you. We need more competition. OK, good. I'm, I'm glad we're getting somewhere, sir. Now let me continue. But again, no, but let me finish. I'm not, not a limited amount of money. Actually, I, I don't think I ever said there was a limited amount of money. What I did say is that our economic system over over decades have been grown at let's say an average rate of two to seven percent. Okay? And in that growth rate, if those people who are in the capital domain, if their grow if their rate of growth is let's say seven to ten to twelve percent per year, and the economy is growing at two to three to four percent per year, it means that that money out of that pie, even though it's a growing pie, they are taking a larger share of that pie. And if they're taking a loud, lo, a, a larger share. would be remedied by higher taxation. I, you see, what I'm trying to say, Ted, is the following. There is so much that you're going to realize that you're in agreement with me on, but because of the way I am saying it, because my... my I agree with you, but my, I don't. You implied that Yes. People are stealing a, from a limited That's, number of resources. And I am, that was a wrong implied. That was a wrong. If, if I if I if uh, somehow it came the out that way. Process of innovation. For example, you know the fact that we have cars instead mm -hmm. of horses mm -hmm. as in, as uh, increased the size of the economic pie. Of course, of course, I don't deny that at all. But guess what? Guess what, Ted? Let's look. The, the biggest innovator in these times have been the, the realization of the internet, and that internet wasn't created by a whole bunch of billionaires or people who maximize on billionaires. It was created by DARPA, okay? And in, in, in and said creation was done by you and me and all of us who paid taxes. We are the ones who did the work. And after the work was done, somebody decided how to capitalize on the work that was designed. So they didn't innovate. They they, they capitalized on it. And we have to learn to, dif to differentiate the word capitalization and innovation. Because those who innovate, engineers, and scientists, these guys are paid, like I said, once. Well, and the reason I use how to apply it commercially, right? And that's what engineers do. Actually, it wasn't Bessos who did that. Engineers and by doing that, usually they they improve the uh, efficiency and I agree and they make it more available to more people. I agree. Give them something they want. I agree, sir. I mean, there's no disagreement here. What's the disagreement here is that what what the capitalist system has done is it has tied having those who are accumulating the worth of others into somehow if that if we don't 
if we don't apply that paradigm, that somehow innovation ceases. And my contention is that no, innovation doesn't cease by not having billionaires. In fact, because billionaires don't create innovation. Innovation, I, I, let me tell you, I would stay in my office don't and innovate, paid or not. The fact that, billion, that billionaires are trying to get to space, that that's going to increase the number of ideas no. on how we're going to... Uh, I, think, I, I think that has already proven... Space more effectively? No, I think I've already been proven right there. Let me, give an, let me tell you why I have been proven right. What Bezos is doing is reinventing what... Uh, I worked for NASA back in the, in the 90s. What he is doing is way with, with prettier equipment, but it's way behind what we did on the space station project. What we did, on, well, I wasn't with the Apollo. I was too young then, but for the Apollo project, all these things have been done before. He is just recycling things that we know work already. In other words, what's the, what he's doing is creating a, an avenue for rich people to go to space, etc. But everything that these guys have done, we've already done it and done more with taxpayer dollars and innovation done by engineers on government salaries. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's how it's marketed like, oh, the private sector into space now. And I'm sitting down twiddling my fingers, Brother Ted. I'm saying, wait a minute. We did that with a computer that is less powerful than my cell phone. And what happens is how we market things. He's, mar- he's inventing a market. Yes, he is. That none of that neither you but and I, mean, I can I take advantage of. I agree with you that billionaires are getting over on us and that by protecting them, especially inherited wealth, yes. like 60% of the wealth, mm-hmm. they are reducing innovation. But mm-hmm. I'm saying that we so, need... More, I don't see any problem with having a private sector innovate, coming up with ideas. I have no problem either. I have no problem with that either. And that is where, and and, and this is the reason I wanted to have the conversation. Once you said what you said, I wanted this conversation. Because because of how we've been taught in school about economics and we've been taught about our economy, a lot of times when I say certain things, it's like, that is such a left-wing thing. You communists, you social. No, that's not it at all. For me, it's all about fairness, right? I'm pretty left-wing. Right. But for me, it's about fairness. It's about fairness and fairness. And uh, it, it irks me that so many Americans do so much. You get, you know, they, they make you believe that Americans are lazy or a certain group of Americans are lazy. I ask folks to do one thing. Go to any community at 7 in the morning in Houston, Texas. And you'll see people hustling at the bus stops, people on the roads, everything. Americans are very, very hard workers. Yet the billionaires, as soon as they are going to make a tad bit less, they have no problems. Bezos had no problems releasing 10,000 people as opposed to saying, uh, but then giving away $100 million to make it look cool. And, And until we... Until we stop adulating, until we stop looking at these guys as something special or benevolent and look for them as what they really are, parasites, and and really, they are parasites, until we learn how not to feel bad calling them parasites. You know, in other words, sometimes it irks you. When I say billionaires, parasites, you... I don't know if they're totally parasites. They're not totally, but they're... There are some parasitic properties. But anyway... Yes, I gotta go. All right, look. Talking to you. Thank you very much for calling in, sir. You have a great day. We 
spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.